politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also Philip Cunliffe in the UK, who's away today, as well as George Hoare, also in the UK. Hello, George. Hey, uh, hi, listeners. Hi, Alex. So we're very glad uh, to be joined today by Sarah Bamari, who's one of the editors of Compact and the author of Tyranny Inc., which is the book that we'll be discussing today. Sarah, very nice to uh, have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me on one of my personal favorite podcast. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Always always good to hear. Always nice to hear. Um, So yeah, anyhow, just to um, kick things off a little bit. So you used to be the op-ed editor at the New York Post, um, which uh, American listeners particularly will know is a famously punchy tabloid whose front covers uh, can be hilariously scathing. So uh, obviously, no, you weren't directly responsible for these, but do you have any uh, favorites from from your time there, ones that particularly stand out? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I was definitely not responsible. It's like this um, group of older guys in their 60s and 70s, you know, City College of New York types who um, uh, come up with those. And um, one that I was responsible for was basically I got um, Cardinal Dolan to write a column for us attacking then Governor Cuomo. This is all very sort of insider New York politics, but we uh, put the... um, they gave it the headline cannon fire on the cover, but C-A, only one N, cannon, haha, you know, but that's actually kind of, it, it's not nearly as, the you know, the closest to being funny. It's just I was somewhat personally involved with my own personal funny uh, New York Post headline uh, or memorable is one which was a minor story. It involved a, a vegan food impresario who turned out to be a a fraudster in the in a manner of Madoff, though not nearly on the scale of Madoff, or at least an alleged fraudster. And so, subsequently, you know, this was she, she was she was a, you know relatively attractive woman, and she got uh, you know a lawyer, and her lawyer and her allegedly had an affair together, which is a violation of the sort of bar association rules for him. Um, so, you know, the headline for this: How do you bring all these elements together? Right? She's a vegan yeah. food impresario, an affair with a uh, with a lawyer. Um, so the headline they came up with was kinky beats and it's just really like, it's very subtle, but very funny. No, I mean, yeah, we're, I think we're, we're fans of, of puns and uh, that sort of thing on, on this podcast probably haven't yeah. achieved that level of, of, of kind of succinct greatness. Um, but yeah, we need to do this for our episode titles, at least, you know, just go in there hard. Um, yeah. Um, well, we'll have to think of what we can come up with for, for this one. Um, you're you're not, you're not going for that in compact, are you? No, because they work in print. Unfortunately for, uh, online, a lot of your uh, heads have to be determined by what works for SEO. So it's always like how Ukraine is losing the war or whatever, but it's always why so-and-so is it da 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 Yeah. Unfortunately, 
I, I think it doesn't lend itself to punny headlines, and it's 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 a kind of a, it's a bit of a tragedy. Also, the tone of the publication is a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, there's also that, I guess. <laughs> no, it's maybe it's a dying art. The the art of the uh, the newspaper uh, tabloid headline, particularly. There's some some famous ones in the UK. The Sun, um, very famous uh, for doing this, often extremely well. Um, but yeah, just to I guess to move on to your your background a little bit, and we'll come come on to Compact and what that project is which we've already, I guess, alluded to. Um, and if listeners don't know, um, they should definitely check out um, Compact. Um, so, yeah, but your, your background... We've had all three of you. Uh, yeah, exactly. We're compactmag.com. I should have um, I should have given the, uh, yeah. the, the URL. Not, um, not that this in any way hinders our objectivity in, in, in asking no. kind of uh, no, you know, cutting I mean, questions. Was, I would expect no less now. It's almost offensive that you would even mention that, Alex. But um, No, you're right. You're yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, but your, your background. So, um, yeah, could you just tell us a, a little bit about, about yourself, um, particularly perhaps your, your journey to Catholicism, because this comes through in quite a bit of the writing and also in, in the book as well, um, I think. So, yeah, just, just yeah, um, sure. tell us a little bit about that. So I, I, I grew up in Iran, um, like very typical uh, middle class to upper middle class family, although in almost sort of Iranian bohemians. My father was an architect. Mother was an abstract expressionist painter, so I grew up in this kind of intellectual milieu, um, uh, which was very secular, and I was sort of enveloped by Western books and ideas when I was growing up in uh, re-Islamized post-revolutionary Iran. Um, Moved to the United States when I was a teenager, but even before I left, I became an atheist while while I was still sort of enmeshed in the Ayatollah's Iran. Um, came to Utah of all places, long story why I landed in Utah, but I sort of imagined America as this sort of decadent Manhattan you would see in the movies, um, and then ended up in, you know, this very bizarre, (laughs) great second great awakening, uh, influenced communitarian state in, you know, where the dominant faith taught that the ancient Israelites had actually attempted to convert the native Americans failed to do so, but left behind their tri- trials and tribulations in golden tablets, which were decoded by a prophet in the 19th century in upstate New York. True story. That's what Mormons Yeah. Is, is uh, Utah the, the, the post-revolutionary Iran of the United States? <laughs> I always just used to joke, which is kind of unfair, that I moved from one theocracy to another. Um, <laughs> it is still like, it, 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 I don't know if it's quite like that anymore, but at least up until the late 90s when I first moved there, um, it's the kind of place that has still a flavor of American regionalism, of such a thing as American regionalism, like the West as such, or Mormon country, which, you know, typic- unfortunately, everything gets um, brutally homogenized um, by, by the market society we have. But there are still pockets, and one of those pockets, this remnant places, mm. is Utah, so that you have Mormon seminaries right next door to every public high school, and I don't know how it's quite legal. It is because the land is owned differently, but they're they're practically in the same building complex uh, or the beer is capped at 3%. The, the, the alcohol and beer is capped at 3%. I was liking it up till there. But yeah, yeah but you, know don't, you don't get judicial flogging for drinking. You know, that's the, that's the, <laughs> right, it's a yeah. different, it's a softer theocracy. Um, yeah. So yeah. And then I intellectually, I went on and from there, it's, it's, uh, it's a sort of banal or mundane journey. Um, because I've written about it, my enemies often go like, oh, he's changed his mind, you know, so many times, but it's actually not that 
not that atypical, you know, I, <coughs> when I was a late teenager, I became a trots, uh, Trotskyite. I was about to say a trot and I thought maybe they should spell it out, uh, and joined a little group called socialist alternative, which is the U S offshoot of a committee for workers international, which is Peter Toff's entryist, um, kind of movement. Uh, and then just gradually, like many, many trots, I abandoned that and I became much more Americanized and happy with the American order because I had done so well by it myself. Um, so that this was the post nine 11 era. And I just thought the only threats now are to ensure that, um, you know, this way of life is preserved and that means it has to spread itself everywhere. So I became a, um, kind of neoliberal or neoconservative, some, somewhere between the two of those, um, went to law school, but never practiced instead work, went to work for, uh, Rupert Murdoch's dark foundries, starting at the wall street journal, uh, which then mm -hmm. shipped me to London to be the, um, the, uh, the opinion editor, uh, of the European edition. Uh, working on the European opinion page, so lived through some interesting stuff there. Like it was during the the, ref, the Scott independence referendum, Scottish independence referendum, Brexit, and then the Trump ordeal. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so around there somewhere, this is a, in a parallel life track. I converted to Catholicism in Britain at a church called the London Oratory, which is a, a church famous for traditionalist liturgy and my politics became more and more populist friendly. Um, you know, like the, the sort of circles I was in uh, were like American neoconservatives. There's a good number of Catholics among them, but they had created this sort of uh, their own version of Catholic political thought, which was, you know, an admixture of, you know, genuine piety and so forth, but with a good chunk of market fundamentalism thrown in such that the right. faith came across as, as though, you know, the popes had thought had, had, there's no, there's no daylight between the popes and, you know, Milton Friedman or, yeah. or Hayek. But then I, the more I sort of drank in actual papal teaching, the, the more that seemed like an untenable uh, uh, synthesis. And so, yeah, my populist, I became more of a, what you would call a right populist. Uh, and right. then I moved to the New York Post eventually, which is also owned by Rupert Murdoch, but it's more of a populist paper. It was, and it was, this was during the Trump era now. And he's, it was his favorite paper, you know, cause he's from New York, he's from Queens. It's a kind of a working class paper. And so I was it, at the Post sort of putting stuff in front of the president at a time that was very exciting when it seemed like you know, a, a small cohort of Catholic intellectuals could shift the right to becoming more solidaristic and more communitarian. Um, and, you know, that project I now think has largely failed, but it was exciting mm. all the same. Um, I so, don't know how much further I should go if that's a good... No, no, that's, no, I think that's really, that's really interesting. And it, it leads then into the, I guess, you know, the most recent kind of um, um, step if you will. Mm -hmm. So that was from New York Post to to setting up Compact. Um, yeah. What, you know, what led you to to do to do that? Yeah, so <clears throat> founders um, all believed that um, that a lot of the cultural crises that exercise people on the left and the right have material roots there. There's some nexus between how we organize our political economy and class structure and the shape of our culture. 
and especially Matthew Schmitz and I come from the right. Matthew, my co-founder, is uh, spent a decade at the religious journal First Things, which is a very prestigious organ of the American religious right. Uh, and I came obviously from Murdoch world. We we both had gotten extremely tired of this tendency among American conservatives to say, oh, it's like, oh, you know, marriage rates are declining. Oh, fertility rates are collapsing. Oh, church attendance is down, et cetera. But then to, to completely blinker themselves to the role of, you know, neoliber- the neoliberal model in creating conditions mm-hmm. that makes it very hard for people to venture the risk of forming the family, of having children, um, that structures their time in such a, a kind of erratic way, all of it aimed at, you know, minimizing labor costs for employers, haphazard, I should say, uh, kind of a haphazard mix of their schedules that they feel completely vulnerable and can't spend time with their kids. And so the kids are super alienated. Yeah. None of this is that mysterious. So we set out to create a, uh, a, a journal that sort of critiques uh, the right, in some ways from the left, in some ways critiques the right from the right against its own claims, you know, sort of ju- measures the right against its own claims. Broadly speaking, one good way to put it um, is that we agree with the right about the effects, but we agree with the left about the causes. Um, hmm. And that yeah. puts us in an then because the left will often um, decry the cause, which is capitalism, but then various like cultural phenomena, which you should decry because it's, you know, evidence of, of despair, of loneliness, of atomization, it, it, uh, because of a sort of hard commitment to cultural liberalism, it has to affirm them as well. So that like, um, you know, why yeah, I mean, sex work becomes something to celebrate rather than something to sort of lament. We, yeah. I mean, we had an episode recently on abolish abolish the family where you know there's some of the things that you you just said maybe um echoed in in the things that we were discussing um with amber frost there but i guess um yeah i mean i think that's also useful background for the the book and not to get ahead of ourselves we'll, we'll come to that in a sec but yeah just um in terms now i guess of of you know you can't that's the the situation of of compact and um you know some of the things it's trying to trying to achieve um but before we get into the the book what what do you think is or how because i guess you described critiquing the right from the right and the right from the left which sounds kind of um could put you in and, in and it should add the left from the left right we run, and the left from the left critics of the left i i would argue for example um in, in some yeah. ways the, the bunga guys you guys um you know We've run several pieces by um, Zizek in which he's made his more, most forceful sort of anti-woke um, statements. A lot of a lot of left criti- critics of um, of anti-populism, of the at- mm-hmm. attempt to thwart the outcome in Brexit or the outcome in various elections in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, our friend and contributor Thomas Fozzi. Contributing editor, I should say, Thomas Fozzi has been a, a very a ferocious critic of the kind of anti-democratic streak on on the liberal left, I should say, which often presents itself as defending democracy. And in in the in the in the name of dem- defending democracy, we have to undo X Y Z election outcome. So that that was the one coordinate that I didn't say initially. So I just want to mention we also published critics of the of the left from the left. <clears throat> 
I mean, it's probably worth getting this question in there now, um, which is what you would say to those critics, particularly on the left, who'd say, look, Compact is just a conservative journal. It has right-wing aims, and it's publishing of people who left-wing people um, and people who identify as, as left-wing uh, and not just as, you know, whatever, maybe post-left. But um, people who are left-wing is just um, a kind of cover for, for, for a for a kind of ulterior agenda that there's not really any kind of um, not really seeing eye to eye, right. Um, on, on um, either kind of the causes of things or indeed on the vision for the future um, that it's, you know, opportunistic even maybe. I, I mean, that's a, it's a charge we certainly get from time to time. And what I would point to is, is just the totality of, of what we've published and the stances we've taken. Um, we do have that same, uh, we come from the world of heterodox journalism where we try to sort of surprise the reader and we publish things that we certainly disagree with. Something called, uh, or sort of motto of, for me, of good magazine editing comes from Leon Rieseltier, who's a kind of classical liberal or uh, was books editor of the New York Republic at its peak in my mind. Who said when you finish a magazine you should be left a little bit cross-eyed right that you uh, mm. because the magazine disagrees with itself uh that is a measure or an index of um boisterousness and and vitality that said we have taken we have taken pretty strong stances that are um sort of a through line through all the sort of boisterous disagreement there are these through lines and and uh you know the chief one is that we defend for example labor's cause and the idea that it would be a healthier economy for there to be greater worker autonomy, worker control, um, and just more in generally an economy where um, you know the market is subject to sort of greater democratic and political pressure in, yeah. in such a way that you couldn't say that this is, you know, a kind of left window dressing for right wing ideas and trying to sort of merely use these kind of leftists to, to punch at at the left, which we do not. For example, we publish, um, you know, Ben Burgess uh, defending the idea that even adjuncts at um, at uh, Rutgers University, you know, should have the right to organize that it's worth celebrating that they were able to get concessions from the university by threatening a strike. Uh, why does that matter? Because many on the right who are kind of, to my mind, fake labor type populist or fake neo-populist Hmm. have this idea of, for example, yes, you know, the laborer of old, you know, the the guy who, you know, works with his hands, although there are people who certainly still do that, but to discount vast swaths of people in the actual economy who are, you know, yes, they're educated baristas or they're adjuncts, so they work in, they're part of the educated precariat. Those are discounted. They're in fact treated as elites. This is one of the sort of tropes of right-wing neopopulism. And I've taken that on head on under my own byline and uh, in, uh, or we have under Burgess's byline. It's it's to a degree is such good faith att attempt to say, hey, you know, the left has the historical left has had a an important point to make that we, this, that's been neglected and, and in fact, mm -hmm. unduly attacked by people on my side, by the right. And uh, it's time to give that a hearing that I think it just, you know, the charge of like bad faith at that point. Hmm. I, I, can't well, I guess there's that. always a, there's always like that thing where 
you know, critics are looking for that hidden agenda, you know, and they're saying, well, but it's, it's actually there, but you can read every single thing you publish and it doesn't appear. So, you know, ultimately you kind of have to <laughs> say that, to, I mean, to those yeah. people like, well, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's just a magazine, which is not to undermine what a magazine is, it's very important, but it's just a magazine. And if you, you can read it and if there's nothing else there, what do you, you know, like the, 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 the problem might be within yourself that you're looking if, for, yeah. for, for this hidden agenda, like. If the agenda is too hidden, then it probably isn't good as an agenda. You know, you have to actually let, give people a, a bit of a consistent um, idea of, of what they're supposed to come away with, which I don't think you, you get from from Compact. Um, personally, I I don't, uh, yeah, cross-eyed maybe after reading a few successive um, uh, posts or, or days worth of analysis on Compact. I think that, yeah, it's probably about right. Um, but yeah, but just to kind of tie this up and move, move on to the book. Um, yeah, just to you've used kind of a few or in the, the book as well use a few different kind of descriptions um working class conservative position would you see yourself as post-liberal pro-labor right-wing social democracy even is there a kind of i guess for for listeners particularly is there a sort of a snappy um you know description that you would of of the position that, that at least you're writing in compact and then the book is is kind of coming from yeah i mean the tradition that I'm most attracted to, and I know we get we'll get into this in the book, uh, because it's 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 not unproblematic. It it has to be unpacked in various ways, and not everything about it translates. But something about the kind of mid-century consensus um, on both sides of the Atlantic, but of course I'm more familiar with the American context. What I mean by that is, if there was a label that you're looking for of that kind, would be a kind of conservative New Dealer, would be. Uh, you know, okay. or a Catholic New Dealer, which is not, uh, it's not sort of a fake tradition or an anomalous thing that I've, you know, that I'm pulling from thin air because a lot of the New Deal coalition mm. was, you know, it was the last time Catholics voted as a unified bloc uh, before kind of cultural polarization set in, um, you know, did a lot of the actors were sure there were progressives, but there were also all these kind of complicated characters, you know, um, progressive farmers, et cetera, who weren't necessarily progressive in the cultural sense that, you know, we would think of today. Um, so it was much more of a, a mixed bag of ideology, but it sort of worked. Another way would be, you know, I think um, is this idea that, um, you know, culturally conservative, economically left and politically democratic, I think I would say is, is mm. a good, which is a description, I think, that a lot of this kind of mid-century intellectuals uh, had, had um, embraced and, and sort of advocated uh, a politics like that, although they may, they may say politically liberal too. Um, but the point is that that politics has now been completely lost except for a few places, and I think Compact uh, mm. yeah. represents that. I'm, I, I don't mean this in, in a snide way at all, but I mean... It, would that not be, you know, a kind of centrism just of a previous age um, without any of the kind of derogatory connotations that centrism now uh, rightly attracts? Well, I would say that that used to be the political consensus and then it was replaced, replaced by the neoliberal consensus. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, Yes, yes, I'm. I'm happy to ex to ex in that sense. Like, if it me if centrism means like vaguely splitting the difference between the sides, then no. But if it means um, 
a politics that can win a broad consensus, then yes. And that's, yeah. um, mm. it, it's funny. I mean, I had another conversation with a person who was, you know, a liberal, let's say, and discussing compact. And they said, you know, is, isn't that, a, aren't you attempting a new, a new center? And precisely because of the, precisely because of the connotations, the negative connotations that centrism has, you think of sort of this like bland Blairite, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, bland or opportunistic or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, and or, that isn't or, the way that I meant the term at all. Exactly, but it's like a political yeah. center. Yes, 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 absolutely. We, In other words, we at Compact do not want to be, uh, you know, in our, in our sense of institutional of who we are and what we aim for, we don't want to be, we don't want to be a po- politics of the margins. We we want to mm. put something forward that can that can win a center. Yeah, win a, I mean, it's, a consensus. it's maybe the you know the Blairites, the uh, centrist dads have given centrism a, a bad name. You can't you can't use that branding um, at all anymore. But no, I think that's 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 really helpful um, to kind of situate. I guess then going on to the the book Tyranny Inc. Um, so the title Tyranny Inc. made me think of Murder Inc. So this like New York gang active in the 30s and 40s. Um, and so I thought the first, I guess the first thing just to clarify is who this this kind of creates this idea then of, of this kind of, you know, a group of people perhaps or a, a kind of a way of, of doing business, if you will. Um, but who are you talking about when you kind of use this term or this name Tyranny Inc.? Yeah, I mean, I'm... This is this will be familiar to any left audience. I'm just talking about um, uh, the systematic coercion to which the assetless majority is subjected in the marketplace and the workplace. And as I say, the the, the problem is that um, precisely because in some cases there's so many market actors, individual market actors, you can have the appearance that there's no one ultimately who is the villain here, which is why, you know, the, the title is in some ways is this kind of vague signifier is like, who is Tyranny Inc. Um, but l- generally speaking, I mean, there is a, there is a class, uh, there's a class, there's a very clear class structure in the United States, despite our historic tendency to pretend like there isn't a class structure. Yeah. Um, and it, largely speaking, I mean, it's, you have the sort of 0.1% of, of the, of the wealthiest and you have um, another five, ten percent of people who service the are, are high managers who service the assets of the 0.1%. Um, and then you have, you know, 90% of people who are um, in, you know, you could largely call them, you know, uh, various levels of middle class, of downwardly mobile educated people, of da- very downwardly mobile poor people, etc. Um, and so Tyranny Inc. is the process by which, um, the, or the mechanism by which the assetless few s- subject the assetless many to systematic coercion, but in a way that, um, in a way that is immured from political or democratic or legal challenge, because right. we are told that this is a private sphere, and so what happens yes. to you in the private sphere is is not political. Yeah. No, I mean, I think this is, you know, one of the the main um, theoretical kind of, or the probably the, the main theoretical focus of the of the book is this this idea of private tyranny or the sorts of private coercion, as you were saying, is found in the workplace and the marketplace. 
rather than specifically coming from um, from government. Why did you think it was you know important to make that distinction between public tyranny, perhaps of an authoritarian state, and private tyranny, which is you know I think essentially the way that you characterise uh, American society today as being almost structured at its very core by this this idea of private tyranny. <clears throat> the main reason is that um, the uh, the Anglo-American mind, uh, especially the conservative Anglo-American mind, is extremely alert to the possibility of uh, of the of a dictatorial, ambitious individual who would usurp public yeah. power and oppress uh, the many. And it's uh, it's always this idea that government is the source of coercion and. Um, uh, to a degree that it that it, to a degree that it obscures the possibility of private tyranny, in a way that I argue, even the uh, you know of course the classical Christian tradition was very much alert to the possibility of private tyranny, um, that we've lost uh, the ability to spot it, and therefore mm. um, we're all the more vulnerable to it. So I mean, this is a complete not not one of the questions I was expecting to ask. But you, you mentioned the Anglo-American mind. Do you think such a thing like still exists? I'm not saying that Anglo's like myself don't have minds. I'm saying like is that is that kind of a consistent like American and and kind of British conservatism? Because the, the the picture that you painted of like the uh, the sensitivity to I guess the the ambitious individual, or the who then becomes kind of some dictator of some sort, or the the perils of government having too much power. That seems like a kind of classically American story. So I'm not quite sure what my question is, other than you know Anglo-American mind. Is yeah, that, the Anglo-American mind. Maybe, maybe is, okay. Is, is am I am I slipping into a bit of uh, you know uh, essentialism? You know, uh, uh, which is we, we one rightly bristles when you say you know the. The, the Russian soul, or the you know the the, the yeah. or in case I'm Iranian, you know the the Persian you know mind. <laughs> so fair fair enough, but I think I mean especially um, uh, yeah, in so far now as uh, British civilization or British uh, culture uh, tracks American culture in some ways, in a way that may be a reversal of the way things were in the 19th century. Um, hmm. You know, uh, yeah, certainly, maybe. A, certainly a lot of, um, a lot of, a, a lot of UK conservatism, uh, certainly in this case of Thatcher, but even more recent varieties sound the same kinds of notes about, uh, you know, the government as being uh, the main menace in your life. Yeah. I don't no, think I think it's I... inaccurate to say that. No, I think that's that's valid, and I also was thinking like maybe everything, every uh, non-American mind is now kind of like double, double barreled, so that it's the uh, you know the Brazilian American mind or the German American mind. That's the you know the triumph of American idealism and American hegemony in the twentieth century. Perhaps mm -hmm. any anyhow. Sorry, I don't want to get us too much off track, but I did want to to at least um at least explore that a little bit as a resident Anglo mind on, on the podcast, particularly when Phil's not here. Um, but yeah, so I think the book is definitely, you know, intended as a, a tour through specifically contemporary America. So you discussed 
kind of all these different areas and, and examples of private tyranny and how they they function. So this is whether this is precarity in the workplace, contractual inequalities um, in labor contracts. I think the the um, the role of private arbitration for labor disputes, the, the boss's court, that's a really good good bit. Um, explore how hedge funds are often um, funded by workers' own pensions and then go on to um, privatize and often kind of destroy corporations um, that those workers work for, whilst the emergency services um, such as ambulances or firefighters are then also, you know, privatized as well. And this seems like, like a very, you can see um, that's a definitely an American uh, story. Um, just to continue the list a little bit, local newspapers, how they've been been gutted, and then finally, you know, worst it's not even worst case scenario, but if it all goes wrong for the uh, for the rich, for the billionaires, then the bankruptcy uh, courts, particularly the Sacklers, this is a great illustration, um, are are just just there to protect all their their assets essentially. Um, so yeah, why did you think it was so important to kind of go through this this tour to so based on some um interviews with um and some archival research as you kind of note at the end so why was it so important to kind of go through this um kind of whistle stop tour um of of america um and what really stuck out for you while you were like doing the research to to kind of i guess um uh, provide the the waypoints on this tour yeah so i i wanted to capture a sort of um totality of american political economy and there's you know some several ways to do that. One is to, one is the purely economic, you know, the sort of an econometric, where you sort of show capital flows, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a that would not make for a good book. And second of all, I'm I'm not a I'm not an economist. Um, I'm a journalist and a storyteller. So the way I tried to capture the totality of this coercion working itself out in many facets of life is by giving essentially a tour of what how ordinary people experience America's political economy in, in, in our time, in the early 21st century, through different facets of, um, it's not completely comprehensive, but it captures a lot, right? It captures, uh, as you said, the, the, the contract where we've, re- we've returned to this 19th century idea that uh, both employer and employee have complete liberty of contract because each can walk away from the other. They so they therefore they have this symmetrical power and therefore labor labor management relations are largely optimal and therefore government shouldn't interfere. This is a, you know, classic 19th century uh, legal and economic doctrine, which has now sort of made a ferocious comeback since the Reagan era. Um, the arbitration courts, I'm very, that's my favorite one just because uh, it's so, so outrageous, just very briefly, without getting too technical. No, no, yeah, talk, talk us through this a, a bit, because uh, it, it really comes through in the book as a, so, <laughs> outrageous. So com- commercial arbitration is a very ancient practice. It goes back to medieval times, to medieval England, actually, where um, there was there were two ways to, when you had a dispute, there was law day, where you took someone to court and basically had a formal judgment, or there was what they called love day, which was when you you know, submitted a dispute between two feuding families or two feuding interests. And they, but, but you submitted them to a neutral arbitrator, typically the, the church, which would then um, resolve them very equitably. But so that's a, and that's a very honorable and noble tradition. But in commercial society, you know, um, 
this kind of had fallen by the wayside because American um, judges didn't want to sort of give up their domain to what they saw this kind of as pseudo courts and pseudo judges. Um, but you had to have some way for, especially as society became more commercially complex and litigious, some way to maybe have something of the old arbitration uh, model. And so there was in 1925, with the help of then Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, who then became later, later president, um, uh, Americans passed something called the Federal Arbitration Act. And the Federal Arbitration Act was meant to ensure that um, federal courts would uphold arbitration agreements between merchants of relatively equal bargaining power. That's the very important part of it is that throughout the legislative yeah. history, they always clarify that they meant that this is for merchants of relatively equal bargaining power. And they went out of their way that this should not be applied to workplace situations. Why should it not be applied to workplace situations? Because in those conditions, there are vast disparities of bargaining power. And so the, the worker could be forced into giving up rights that he would otherwise have to sue his or her, her employer. And that was upheld for many years until the 1980s when the Supreme Court gradually began to expand the Federal Arbitration Act to apply it to the workplace as well. The result is, let's say you have, you are an employee, this is actually a case that I tell the story of, but you know, let's say you have a case yeah. against your employer for underpaid wages. These are wages that you are entitled to under New Deal statutes like the Fair Labor Standards Act, and you have good reason to believe that they were wrongly withheld from you. Nevertheless, your employer can force you to do individual arbitration, which is a very expensive process. It might cost you $200,000. The problem is that you may only be trying to, to recover $2,000 in unpaid wages. So it's completely uh, irrational economically for you to go through arbitration for this um, unless unless you're able to do group arbitration or you're allowed to go to court as a as a class action because if you then have many people who are similarly situated it becomes rational for you to sue as a group but our courts the supreme court has held that no you know arbitration the arbitration clause of an employment agreement overrides everything including it's okay for an employer to say you've been you've been working for the employer for 6 months 7 months a year 2 years can send you an email that says, if you show up to no work the next day, George, you agree that from now on we will arbitrate our disputes rather than you having the right to, mm. the traditional right yeah. to go to court. Um, and neoclassical economic theory says, or libertarian type th theory says, well, at that point, you are perfectly free to renegotiate your employment contract or walk away. But it's this kind of, that's so abstract. It is so unlike how the real world works. In the real world, when your employer says, if you show up the next day, you agree to submit your disputes to arbitration, you just show up to work the next day because you have to pay your bills. You have to take care of your kid. You have to you know, pay your mortgage. So it, I, I won't spell out any of the other examples in such great detail. It's just this one is particularly, I think, when people read that chapter, they're, the normal non-sociopathic person's blood boils. Yeah, no, I think and and the boss's court is a good, a good description of it because it's um, <clears throat> I guess the what it constrains uh, employees to do is is a great example of that kind of private coercion and how the 
you know the unequal power between the you know employer and the employee is um is realized and reinforced yeah the thing i think you said sort of you know uh looking back at kind of even its medieval origins is uh, a common problem with liberalism in economics which is this kind of um that it belongs to a different age effectively for all its pretense of kind of modernity it um it, re- it, re- it refers really to a very early modernity like a world of um, merchants and artisans and small shopkeepers and small landholders um, who can engage in the market in a fairly equal way not without its own kind of barbarisms and whatever but you know like it, it kind of works and it's just not our world and hasn't been our world for like 150 years you know so it's like that's how far out of date it is and yet it's still used as a sort of ideological and you know superstructural legal um kind of uh, ballast to, to the system yeah just very quickly like econ 101 courses um all assume this pre-industrial arcadia in which you know typically there were a bunch of yeomen and they can yes they can they can trade with each other at an at a at arm's length and each can walk away from the deal um, and each owns his own tools, etc. That that world, as you said, um, has not existed um, since since the early latest, you know, since the early nineteenth century. What's yeah. interesting is Adam Smith even recognized that even in his the, he was writing in the age of that Arcadia of the masterless men and the sort of artisans, yeomen, etc. Nevertheless, he recognized that even in that kind of pre-industrial late eighteenth century condition that still the employer had uh, far more power over the employee than the other way around. You know, there's a passage, famous passage in the in book three of Wealth of Nations, where he says, you know, uh, the, the employer can go on because of the way profits are distributed. The employer can go on for a year or two years off his, what he's stored up, whereas the employee can't go for uh, a week or maybe even a, a single day without getting paid. So although master and employee might need both need might both need each other, still the, you know the need is not nearly urgent for the one as it is for the other. Yeah. So I'm slightly paraphrasing, but uh, even in the Arcadia, it wasn't quite. Yeah, yeah, he was he was a lot saner than his uh, self-professed uh, champions. Yeah, today. no, the great great social democratic thinker Adam Smith. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it does it does put the. Um... <laughs> The pressure on the on the worker to find the resolution to the the problem because they uh, don't have all the money in the bank to just literally buy uh, buy food while the um, discussion is going on. But yeah, I guess um, one of one of the bits that I think both Alex and I found interesting, or it refers to a, a book that um, we've talked about JG Ballard on this podcast quite a bit before, um, the super cans bit, using it, this um, uh, novel as an illustration of the transformation from of what it would look like if we transform from homo politicus into homo economicus and the sort of place that you know we're we're moving to or the sort of society that i guess um, is the result of this growing you know private tyranny or, or what you call coercive depoliticization um and maybe like the the end point of the the survey of of, of the developments that you survey in the previous um chapters so yeah i guess kind of bringing all of these um you know <laughs> stops on the tour together what you know what would you say is the the overall kind of consequence um for, of all of these things for the american um worker today is it to be kind of excluded from this um this kind of uh, walled community of super can and instead um 
under the foot of the the boss, both in the sense of the the owner and the and the manager. Yeah, I mean, of course, of course, it is. Um, you know, this uh, there is this sense that we are all just ever more precarious. There's that. Um, I think precarity is the fundamental condition of the American worker today, and um, I think of, of, around much of the world, of much of the developed world as well. But America always takes things to their sort of terminus faster and in a more fulsome way. And so that this is where it's all playing out. But there are many symptoms of that, you know, uh, of what does precarity look like? Well, uh, it looks like the fact that <clears throat> this is wage precarity, the fact that uh, about nearly half of Americans would struggle to come up with $400 in cash to pay for an emergency exigency, you know, if something comes up, they would have to resort to, you know, either high interest credit cards or loan sharks, etc. They don't have $400 in cash. That's pretty astonishing. It looks like the fact that uh, half of uh, half of fast food workers have to rely on public welfare to make ends meet. Um, it looks like the fact that a quarter of adjunct professors have to rely on public welfare to make ends meet. Um, and so, I mean, these are all also power disparities because if you're in that condition of, um, of not being able to pay your bills unless you work that job, which even if you work full time, it's not enough, and you have to rely on public welfare, you're under the, you're under the foot of two uh, uh, coercive figures. One is the, uh, obviously your employer at work with all the sort of coercion that we talked about, like arbitration and uh, non-disclosure agreements, et cetera, et cetera, all these ways to constrain you, but you're also under the foot of the, of the welfare administrator who can, you know, right. check to see whether you spent your welfare money on cigarettes and, you know, yeah, you bought a pack of beer, you know, instead of just mm -hmm. what's allowed. So uh, that's a, that's a con condition of both precarity and also ever more um, kind of constraints. It also means in a, it's a, it's a, the worst kind of economy is actually what my friend Michael Lynn calls a low wage, high welfare. When you say high welfare, it doesn't mean that um, the welfare benefits are generous. In fact, they're, the, they're miserly as can be, but it just means that as a share of the income that sustains a worker, welfare is a, um, is a significant share. Yeah. Um, that, so that just means what are we doing as a society? We're, we're subsidizing uh, coercive employers uh, in their ability to pay less. For, for labor than they should otherwise. It's a, it's grim stuff. It's grim stuff. I will say we can get into this, um, but there are signs that we're moving beyond neoliberalism in some ways in the United States. Uh, the Biden administration is mm. kind of an interesting administration. I, I first encountered this idea actually in a New Left Review essay. Um, and I was sort of, I, I sort of balked at the time. I was like, are you kidding me? This is Biden we're talking, because I know Biden. But uh, since then I've had to, I've had to take stock of the fact that there are some serious signs that people like, especially like people like me who are, who would put their hopes in something like right-wing populism have to reckon with the fact that, you know, the more humane and realistic solutions are now still largely on the left and center left. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I want to come back to that actually. I mean, we've been pushing the 
you know, post-neoliberalism idea for at least four years now. I mean, post-neoliberalism in the sense that the world is moving beyond yes, neoliberalism. No, but but the, but the train has certainly kind of stalled <laughs> or is moving more slowly, I think, than we might have foreseen back in 2019. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, which maybe we can get into as well. The trains of history um, don't before, run on time. No, that's right. Yeah, that, unfortunately, we need to... Yeah, well, that is actually the, the task of the of the communists to make the trains of history run on time. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm going to... Sorry, that was my fault. Anyway, I interrupted you. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to return actually to, to the world of, of Supercan, of, of uh, Ballard's novel, which is one of my favorites, actually. And I was kind of delighted to read that section in there. Um, because the world that it paints is one which obviously we're... Um, familiar with, I mean, it's something that's been observed for a good thirty years, which is the what Christopher Lash called the revolt of the elites, or you know, this idea that there's this um, managerial class, not and not just the kind of um, you know the billionaires, but the kind of managerial class just below them who uh, implement their their will, live in a world which is cut off from from the rest, right? And and Superkan is great in detailing this sort of sanitized, childless space. Um, where these people live in the in the in the Côte d'Azur in the south of France, but it's a business park and it's so soulless that they have to get their kicks by committing ultra violence on the lumpens who live outside. Um, and it's great, it's fantastic. I love that novel, but it also is a little bit of, of a world that the vibe's different to, to today's world. Let's put it in the kind of vaguest way possible, right? Um, that vibe is very um, much of a society that's retired. Right. It's very end of history vibe, in my opinion. In fact, it's one of the novels that I would pick to kind of try to illustrate, along with some of other of Ballard's work um, of uh, actually to pick an image from a, from a different novel of the same period of a, a billion balconies facing the sun, which is this idea of a society that's retired. Right. Um, and um, what I think is kind of different, I want to kind of ask you about this, if, whether you buy this idea that now that the interesting thing about the Superkan vision is that you've got the managerial class kind of hived off in its own little area and you've got the lumpins, but there isn't really any kind of bulk mass of society, right? The kind of broad middle-class working class, maybe broad middle-class in the American sense of the word, which includes most of the working class um, is absent, right? That, that kind of doesn't exist. And I think it's, it's kind of telling. And I wonder whether now that mass of society of the kind of, proletarianizing middle class is now much more present, much more visible because of the kind of populist revolts. So, you know, if you were going to write Supercan again, it would it would have a different, you know, there would be another um, there would be another figure there. No, I, I think you're you're exactly right. I, I mean, what I would suggest is that uh, Supercan uh, represents what the what the kind of Asset owning class, the managerial class, com combined with the billionaire class. I'm. I should side side note. I'm a little bit skeptical of Burnhamite theories of managerial takeover. I think, like, you know, the old school capitalists are still quite powerful. Um, they were able to refresh mm. themselves, contrary to what Burnham predicted in the 1940s. Um, but that said, I mean, setting that aside, I mean, I think uh, th their ideal would be a world in which. Um, everything is runs on autopilot. Uh, as, as much tangible labor as possible is um, is outsourced to to robots, etc. Such that the only kind of all that remains are, as you said, the lumpen who are sort of the 
they're not part of they're sort of um you know to to they're 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 barbarians they're not quite part of the community at all it's just sort of like oh like mm. a prostitute here a migrant there um that, that that is all that sort of remains but you're right that that's um that's not been po possible because of, of populist revolts that uh began to convulse the real world as opposed to the novelistic world in the mid mid 2010s um that continue to to ripple i argue i think that those movements have sort of petered out um moreover i would say that the the, the establishment has in a very shrewd way taken on some of their critiques and um, acted yeah. on them um but that's i mean that's credit to the sort of voters in some ways for for making themselves visible uh and, and covid by the way uh revealed the extent to which their working class people or middle class people the people who still do tangible labor are you know essential to um to the functioning of the system in a way that the um the real world counterparts of the super con villains you know the 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 managers of this place um of this kind of uh silicon valley style park on the in the uh, south of France, uh, they, that they had not assumed, right? That you said they they thought ev ev it would all be informatic work, et cetera. And then suddenly you're like, oh yeah, we need like garbage to yeah. be picked up, and we need people to manufacture mm -hmm. masks. Essential and, workers. Uh, essential workers was an is an important thing. I have this theory, which I'm going to run by you guys, see what you think. I've been meaning to write this as a compact essay, but I haven't quite found. But that. This is my most charitable reading of the Covidian left, right? When what, the kind of left that's really dug down on COVID as a thing that we have to, um, we have we have to do have masking forever and then all the vaccine restrictions and requirements and so forth. Is that for so long um, the left had failed to compass the market, like neoliberalism had done so well. And now finally, you have some reason to say there's they're going to be we're going to limit market activity in some way as arbitrary and irrational as you want it to be. At least there's some way where we can say, oh, OK, well, we're, you're not you can't travel. You got to stay home. Um, this is my most charitable reading of it is that, you know, that yeah, yeah. Finally, politics somehow compasses the market rather than the other way around. Um, now, of course. In practice, it ended up, you know, in enriching the Bezos uh, and and uh, all the billionaires of the world, and it was is in some ways you can say it was an upward trans transfer of wealth. Uh, but in theory, I mean, I, I I'm trying to say what is the what was the impulse? It was the impulse to say actually politics comes first, biopolitics comes first at least. Um, it's like a very yeah. sort of low I mean, that's, expectation that's been... left, but it's like what else can we do to say that? Uh, politics is more important than the market. That's been, I mean, that's been completely my reading as well. I don't know, if Phil and George, maybe I think we might've disagreed a little bit about this, um, them having lived through the <laughs> lockdown in the UK, um, which we didn't really have in Brazil, makes them a lot less inclined to be charitable in any <laughs> reading of the lockdown left. And I, and I, and I get it. Um, but my reading was also this, that even beyond the left, 
But, uh, you know, everyone's kind of waiting for authority, right? Waiting for this moment where sclerotic politics is broken through and something happens and someone takes charge and just sees through a vision, right? And no more negotiations and a bit of this and a bit of that. And ultimately all kind of comes out on the wash and it's a bit of a mess and nothing really changes. And yeah, this was left going, oh, now's a moment where, as you say, politics comes first. We can use the state to pursue some aim and the old ways of doing things which suck are now over. Um, and there is a there is a kind of emotional appeal to that. And I think everybody has that, albeit in different ways. So, you know, for the right, a lot of it wasn't COVIDianism, it was something else. It's let's shut down the borders, let's build the wall, right? Like I think that's a that's the complement to it. Mm-hmm. Like let like, we don't need to kind of think about some complicated visa system and um, you know, all these bureaucratic tech technologies. No, no, we're just gonna build a big fucking wall, which is like the dumbest idea. It's like it reminds me of when I was a kid and I had to write like some story about how to like help drought in Africa. And I was like, let's get a, a big block of ice on a plane and take it there. So that by the time it gets there, it'll melt, but it'll still be cold. And it's like, it's that level of thinking, oh. right? Like really dumb kid, like build a wall. And it's COVID the same thing. What if everyone just stayed at home for a while until the disease went away? And it, there's something, you know, really deep down kind of appealing about that of just like, let's seize authority and just do do the thing. Well, I mean, clearly you were kind of a big thinker, uh, even at an uh, early age, you know, coming up with these like, <laughs> solutions to world historical problems. But I mean, the, I guess the point about authority, I, 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 I partly accept that because, I mean, there's a great, a great piece in, um, in, in Compact, uh, Authoritarianism Without Authority, um, if I remember the, the title correctly, which, which ex- explores <laughs> some of these, these things like, yeah, there was that you know, it did fill that void of, of, author, of authority, but I think the problem or yeah, maybe, and maybe you are right, Alex, for, for reasons of lived experience, I'm less uh, inclined to be sympathetic to, to the kind of COVID left, but I think, you know, that authority has to be, you know, has to be constituted ultimately by, by us and that kind of agent of political change that can capture the market has to be, has to be, you know, people rather than, you know, natural um limits or kind of or, or a virus i mean that's the so maybe it is that specific sort of wishful thinking which which maybe does explain it a little bit and certainly there were i think in at least in britain you know early days of covid there were some like analyses which was you know this could be the the, the shortcut to socialism you know we now have the finally the it's 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 not politically enacted but it's necessary so there could there could well be some kind of that 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 constraint um you know, kind of moving things forward, but yeah, I think um, yeah, def- I would definitely be be keen to read this in um, in compact, and it would you know re- reignite the uh, the discussions uh, within this podcast. On, it it, it on would this. refer to your essay, um, uh, which I should to plug it. It, it is that the headline is authoritarianism without authority by by one George Hoare. Um, so uh, yes, I, I yeah, no, I I extremely insightful piece. I would. Uh, I would tend, yeah, tend to agree. No, I mean, I think it's 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 an attempt to to think through some of the, I guess, not a million miles away from the the book, kind of what what is the structure of kind of 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 public power, and my take would be that this, that kind of public coercion feels um, strangely lacking in in authority in in some ways. So maybe you know that's why private tyranny is so um, is so crucial. But I I wanted to get onto. I guess, you know, 
what should we do about all of this if we agree that we don't perhaps want to live uh, either in a, in conditions of subjection and precarity forever or or maybe if we you know make it to the top into a walled community where we can venture out nightly to um to to uh, commit acts of super violence on on the locals like yeah i mean i guess it's then the prescription that that comes after this um diagnosis and you know for me at least it it definitely reminded me of michael lind's um work in in some ways you know some some similarities and you obviously already mentioned him and he's i think um you know we've discussed his his work on this podcast before um but yeah do you so would you agree with a kind of what i think is a a simplified version of his thesis and he's not the only one who has this which is essentially that you had this kind of class compromise say 1945 to 73 um then this was a kind of a good a good um period for the for the working class and maybe something that we should go back to actually i guess in the context of what you said earlier of being a kind of catholic new dealer maybe there is some you know maybe you wouldn't entirely agree with that i, I kind of asked that question or, or started off um asking that question thinking you might, maybe would agree but you know i guess so o- over to you talk talk us through that kind of how do you see that period and no, you know. I, I i do agree i do agree i mean i i think i'm a class compromiser and in this sense it's why right. I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not a leftist, um, uh, even though I accept the critic critique of the left of you know how well many leftists are class compromised. Oh, for sure, I would to say. Be sure, to be sure. <laughs> no, I, what I mean is I'm not a you know I'm not a hard Marxist or what have you. I you know I, I read Marx um, profitably uh, about how sort of class antagonism develops and and so on and so forth, but ultimately. Um, I don't see the solution in a in a classless society or in a total takeover by one class of of the means of production, but rather, you know, uh, something like the the model that emerged on both sides of the Atlantic in slightly uh, you know slight variations. Europeans nationalized more. Europeans had thicker welfare nets, um, and I think they did unionization. Uh, the right way in Europe, which is sec- largely in, in, and I'm talking about continental Europe, sectoral or regional bargaining, as opposed to shop by shop. But nevertheless, you know, we we did the same thing in, in the United States in halting and uh, imperfect fashion, fashion as it was. Um, and the so how did the class compromise come about? And this is where a lot of conservatives who are nostalgic for that era make a mistake, which is they just imagine, well, you just got to persuade elites that they can be better elites or good elites if they are, you know, compromise and give more to the, to the asset. Yeah. Um, no, the way it came about was by building up the countervailing power of, of, uh, of the working class. And I, I rely specifically as a kind of economic, um, uh, lattice work for the book. I rely on a much neglected thinker who's not easily, uh, categorized into a, ideological box, and that's John Kenneth Galbraith, who is not sort of a a theorist of the New Deal, as in, here's what we do, but rather an observer of how the American tradition responded to the crises of competitive capitalism in the 19th century and earlier 20th century by creating the New Deal. And kind of explain, he was more of an an explainer, an observer rather than uh, an advocate. And he just pointed out that that the um, the depression had been caused by a demand crisis as workers were not 
getting paid enough to be able to buy the things they themselves produced. And so you, you know, that very obviously led to a society that it was a, a, a crisis point that was really bad for society's winners as well. Um, and so how did you get to the, uh, create an economy in which workers could afford the things that they produced? And that was by, uh, above all, by increasing union uh, coverage and density um, from single digits up to nearly a third of the uh, private economy labor force at its peak in 1945. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, it's not dramatically out of the American tradition in, you know, that the state goes out of its way to uh, promote collective bargaining because Galbraith says that um, collective bargaining is somewhat like a, uh, it is actually sort of rooted in the idea of competition, right? Competition is thought of as largely, you know, two sellers, if I sell it for less, I win the competition, right? Uh, but the, in the case of countervailing power, the competition comes from the other side of the market. So it comes from sellers going up against buyers. So in this case, it's sellers of labor power, workers who are much more numerous, going up against a smaller number of buyers of labor power who are uh, relatively few in number, and if that if all else being the same, workers get screwed, uh, sellers get screwed. But if they can team together, they can mount it. They can exert countervailing power, um, and that idea is not uh, is not historically contingent to the period 1945 to 1973. Um, there are there have been macroeconomic changes since then. I don't need to spell them out on this podcast, but, um, you know, the idea of countervailing power as a sort of fulcrum economic move for a better society and actually ultimately a better macro economy and a kind of class compromise model can can be applied in a sort of trans historical way to other conditions. Um, so that is my sort of yeah. what is to be done is and, and, mm. and it's surprising because I'm known as a sort of very kind of uh, at the level of critique kind of, I don't want to use the word radical, but dramatically uh, critical of, of liberal society today. But I think people will be surprised reading the book as how much of a sort of humdrum reformer I am at the level of prescription, you know, sort of, yep, tripartite boards where workers and management and government come together to set prices. And, you know, this sort of New Deal type energetic reforms, I, I find very yeah. attractive. And I was, I was thinking, why did I as flawed a movie that it was, there was something nice about the movie Oppenheimer because it reminded us of what that what that model could achieve. In this case, a very destructive thing of the atom bomb. But that model of mobilizing industry, labor, unions, you know, every element of society, you know, but, uh, you know, but, you know, the kind of unity of purpose and just sort of reforming FDR style energy is very, I think it's very attractive to me. And uh, I think people will be surprised. They're like, oh, that's fairly, that's fairly humdrum. Yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of goes back to this idea, maybe of of centrism of an of an older sort to a certain extent. But I think there is an important kind of point here around that that class compromise being achieved through um, through increased power of labor rather than through kind of. I think there is a kind of 
one approach to this which is almost like moral exhortations to elites to be better or capitalists to be nicer and you know so maybe there is that kind of um that's what makes it for some particularly radical because it's like well you know people have interests in the way that you get this class compromises by is by balancing these and countervailing power rather than by just convincing capitalists to do something to do things which are against their you know against their interests which you know good luck and if you can do it very impressive but it doesn't seem all that likely um to me um but alex i thought i think you had a a, a question yeah on this, so didn't want to i mean you know i i'm skeptical about how much you can bring back social democracy in the form that it existed without world war um coming before it but you know there's various bits there which are very good which you'd want to bring back right as you say kind of at the level of more detailed policy prescription um but it also strikes me that this wouldn't be something which would be carried through by labor itself, um, either because labor is weak and also because its um, representatives, I mean, within the labor movement are very attached to um, the Democratic Party and the mainstream of the Democratic Party. So there doesn't seem to be a break coming there. I presume that you imagine some sort of alliance of right and left, um, maybe a kind of heterodox alliance, and that would be the kind of politics that would carry it through maybe something that doesn't exist institutionally yet, but would, would, there's a basis for it within American society. I don't know if you see that as kind of, look, let's agree on some economic basics that we want to pursue. Let's forget about culture and there can be a kind of coalition or alliance formed on that basis. I mean, is that the, the political vision that you have? Uh, more or less. I mean, I've, I've, I've sent emails to my sort of most immediate political allies spelling out the necessity of uh, a consensus in the middle, uh, going back to the, to a kind of new centrism or reclaiming the idea of centrism that I, I haltingly embraced at the beginning of this podcast um, to get down to uh, more specific terms. It's something that I actually have sort of talk, talked about and um, with my allies and you know, you do see definitely green shoots on the Republican Party is, you know, when a Senator Rubio or a Senator Vance, uh, these are populist Republicans, when they talk about labor issues, they talk about them as as the way that the uh, AFL-CIO, the major labor union here, would want to know, do they embrace policies that I think, uh, do they always embrace policies that I think they should? Not yet, but in halting ways, they're trying to do that. And so I think that there should be outreach and, uh, uh, and and this outreach and this dance has to be in both directions. I mean, it's partly that labor would become a little bit more comfortable with the Republican Party if the Republican Party weren't so uniformly hostile. Um, and there is some at the level of like local, you know, local labor councils and stuff. Uh, there are uh, a lot of voters that are turning to the GOP, mainly some some cases because of cultural reasons, some reasons because of free trade, in some cases um, um, because of um, immigration issues, what have you. Um, but in order for the national news and unions to come along, the Republicans have to be less uniformly hostile to labor. But conversely, I mean, I think the Labor Party needs to begin to, ha- the labor movement as such needs to have to begin to have the courage not to be an appendage just of the Democratic Party, which puts it in a in a position of, of weakness, actually, right? Because you have to dance to whatever tune the Democrats play, um, and that would mean, for example, you know, a, a 
a, a labor movement that's more purely about these economic issues and not, you know, um, no, not so maximalist on reproductive rights. Whatever you might think of reproductive rights, a lot of people in this country, including working middle, lower middle class people, are more pro-life. And so um, it, it's odd for the labor movement, for example, to be so in bed with kind of Democratic Party, cultural liberal uh, attitudes and commitments. Uh, and so, you know, you can have this dance. Um, that said, I, look, I, I also, I mean, I end the book on a note that, you know, I still think that like the major positive reform proposals are to, to be found among the likes of Senator Sanders and Warren. Uh, I, I've, I've said that on this podcast as well. A lot of the kind of right-wing neo-populism seat strikes me as kind of fake. Um, it's just all yeah. culture war. In other words, they sort of rechannel economic grievances into, into culturalist grooves, you know, such that somehow sometimes in this discourse, Elon Musk becomes a kind of subaltern rebel and, you know, your average adjunct professor becomes the elite. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so that's something that's up to, to people like me on the right to sort of call that out and say, Hey, that's, that's, you know, that's fake. That's not really populism. Um, So, yeah, I guess um, just one, one sort of question to, to wrap it up a, a little bit or to, I guess, you know, maybe put you on the spot a little because we've touched on you know some of the the themes and you know the pervasiveness of, of private coercion some of the things that you know need to be done to be, to build this this countervailing power and that you know the way you potential starting point focus on you know economic issues and independence from the democratic party of of the labor movement so but it seems to me that like this is also as you know as many books about america are it's also a book you know on america what america means what is you know what is the future of the american dream and all the, all this sort of thing so are you kind of optimistic or pessimistic about the the prospects of this these kind of you know movement towards countervailing power that you you've just been talking through um or or pessimistic i mean is is america today the land of the land of the free could it could it be or is it all you know becoming super can no i mean I'll, i'm i'm ultimately um you know i i should say i'm, I'm doing it another book project i'm so masochistic that way so i'm like peeking around the next book even before the new one's out as we're recording this the new one isn't out yet it comes out on august 15 tyranny inc but the next one i'm already sort of kicking around and um you know, I won't go into the details, but it's broadly about the Jacksonian era and the sort of economic history of the or the first half of the 19th century. Um, and it's remarkable how how familiar some of the problems are, and um, you know how the the problem of private tyranny. I mean, in that case, it was the case of um, in Jackson's you know, war against the second bank of the United States, which was this congressionally chartered institution that acted like a central bank, but also was a vehicle for, you know, what they called the money power in the 19th century, you know, North, Northeastern uh, merchants, mid-Atlantic industrialists, and then the Southern slave capitalists. Um, and it, it inspired tremendous anger on the part of um working men in the north and then the farmers in the south and the west and that anger and that sense of precarity of that time 
found its focus in this democratic, this supremely democratic figure of Andrew Jackson, who, as imperfect as he was, um, smashed the bank. By the way, its immediate consequences were terrible because bank, the bank, as much as it was a kind of corrupt vehicle for an elite, it also helped stabilize the American fin you know, financial system. Afterward, you had like this mess of wildcat banking and, and regional and small banks that we still have in the United States, which are actually kind of troublesome, but I won't bore you with those details. But the, the, the kind of the premise that Jacksonism introduced is that that the market is not should not be thought of as immured from from small d democracy. That's the principle of Jack, mm -hmm. Jacksonian democracy, for all its flaws. And you know, then it finds express that idea finds expression again after another calamity, a uh, much worse one of the of the depression in in the figure of FDR. And you get to a more serious set of reforms in in the course of the twentieth century. So. In, you know, in a way that might, again, surprise people who are familiar with my work, I have this kind of small d democratic faith uh, of, of the um, ability of ordinary people to channel their will eventually. And um, I have to believe in that because I live here and I don't want to live in Supercon. I really don't want to. Yeah. Uh, I don't live in Supercon and I have children and I so I'm, I have to be optimistic. No, I mean, I think that that kind of his, history of economic democracy in in or those ideas in the U.S. like finding that particularly American story, I think that sounds like a uh, yeah, very worthwhile um, project, definitely. Um, but I should I should conclude by by thanking you again and by pl plugging the book. I mean, we did say before Tyranny Inc. Um, and you did say out fifteenth of 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 August, um, and obviously Compact. Um, as well but yeah when um you plug plug this book before the uh the, the i know i know don't, don't get confused it's not the jackson book <laughs> yeah That's yeah i mean so don't don't google um jackson book that but that will be in in due course um yeah no so thanks so much sarab thanks for coming on cheers thank you george and alex really appreciate it